Southern trees bear a strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. presidential election brought the continued presence of white nationalism in the U.S. to public view. And suddenly, the existence of individuals in the United States who advocate for a racially white understanding of America was no longer just a matter of our national history. It was the central belief of some of the current president's supporters. And these white nationalists caught many people off guard because they did not look or act or speak like the mythical images we've created of such groups. These people were not robed in white and burning crosses like the KKK of decades past in film depictions. But these dramatized portrayals have actually harmed us. They've aided in this distancing of the reality of white nationalism in the United States from our minds. They overlook white nationalism's various manifestations and important questions such as, what is whiteness? What is the relationship between race and class? And for this episode, what role has religion played in white nationalism? Back in February, I spoke with Kelly J. Baker about these questions, and specifically the relationship between Protestantism and American white nationalism. Kelly is the editor of Women in Higher Education and a freelance essayist. She regularly writes for publications such as Killing the Buddha and Sacred Matters. She also has a PhD in American Religious History from Florida State University. But most importantly for the interview we had, Kelly is the author of the award-winning book, Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. The conversation that Kelly and I had will be helpful to anyone who is confused about the relationship between white nationalism, the alt-right, and religion in the United States. But after the interview, stay tuned, uh, there is going to be some Holy Media Show updates. Pastoral scene of the gallant south The bulging eyes and the twisted mouth set of magnolia. Sweet. So, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, I'm just kind of curious how have you been since the election and inauguration, <laughs> given your research? Oh, man. I just told someone this morning that I felt like I was living through the stuff that I researched. Like, I was having this weird, like, moment of dissonance where I was like, but I write about this stuff. I don't live through it. <laughs> Which sounds really whiny and maybe entitled, but I also, I mean, it's just kind of a weird moment for me to see that people are regularly talking about white nationalism and white supremacy and that no longer am I kind of having to like convince people these are important topics, but now it's like relevant and everyone 
has an opinion on it mm-hmm. and wants my opinion on it. And um, so it's kind of a bizarre move, you know. I have friends that are, like, tweeting me, and they're like, oh, look, it's the white nationalism White House. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, we've done this before. <laughs> like, like, this is not a new thing, right? Like, this, this is a thing that's happened before. Um, so it's, it's kind of a bizarre, bizarre moment for yeah. me. So, so for listeners who aren't religious studies scholars <laughs> and haven't spent a lot of time yeah. reading about the Klan, how, how did Protestantism kind of, in, how was it in, like, as a part of the KKK's kind of like yeah. ideology? No, this is a great question. So um, Protestantism was foundational to the Klan. Um, in, and I would argue it's actually foundational to the Klan in almost all of its incarnations. But in the 20s, where I'm studying, this is the, like, most popular clan with mm-hmm. millions of members. Um, you have chapters in 48 states, right? They do a march on Washington. Like, it's this huge order. And Protestantism was really the moral and ethical compass that they had, which is kind of an interesting thing to say about a hate group, right, uh, in some sort of way. But they very much understood that... To be American citizens and to be truly American citizens, you needed to be native born, Mm -hmm. you needed to be white, you needed to be Protestant, and you needed to be masculine in some kind of way. So Protestantism was one of those kinds of key identity points so that, you know, like I would go through clan newspapers and they're like debating the theology of Jesus, right? Like where they have like this kind of interesting, like, relationship with Jesus where they, like, admire that he was a Jewish carpenter, but, like, how cool is it that he went on to found Protestantism? So they, like, <laughs> skip Catholics, like, entirely, right? You kind of go from, like, Jesus to Martin Luther mm-hmm. and you kind of Catholics to But they're having these, like, interesting kind of theological and historical conversations about what is Protestant Christian identity supposed to look like? What countries is it attached to from Europe, right, who have immigrants that land in certain ways? Um and, you know, like, how would Jesus respond to people that didn't like the claim, right? And they wanted to claim that he would be like, no, that's not cool. The claim is amazing. And I just, you know, it's this kind of wild world of um, how honest they kind of were mm-hmm. about, like, very much thinking about, like, what does Christian identity do for us? How can we mobilize it, right? But how are we also thinking about it as a group, right? Uh-huh. So that they're telling people to go to church at the same time they're telling them to go to marches, Right. Um, like hand in hand. But I mean, it's really interesting too that, you know, when you, you mentioned the idea of like a moral compass and, you know, debating theology of how much that still, how much that language and that treatment of white nationalism feeds into the entire shock that everyone had around like the, the phrase nice racism. Or, like, the suit and tie racist of, yeah, there are people who go to church. There are people who, you know, have people over for dinner and have block parties. And and that our understanding and our concept of what it means to be a white nationalist is very distorted. Yeah, and and I think part of it is we kind of imagine that white nationalists look like 1960s Klansmen, right? That they're overtly racist, that they say racial slurs in public, right? That they probably aren't middle class, but they're working class, right? Or that they are uneducated. And it really actually misses all the nuance of the fact that white supremacists, who I study, tend to be middle class, Mm -hmm. (laughs) tend to be college educated, they're bankers and lawyers yeah. and ministers, right? Um, and advertisers and 
and teachers and they're not, you know, hanging out, burning crosses and yelling at people. I mean, they're doing stuff on the clan on the weekends or weeknights or going to their meetings, but the, the, the sort of whiteness gives them a pass, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a sort of respectability attached to that, that I think is part of what we're reacting against, right? This kind of idea that someone's nice, they can't be racist. And it's like, well, actually, we <laughs> can kind of stand together, right? Someone could be very nice to you because of shared whiteness, mm-hmm. but have a really different vision of what they think of Muslims, right? Or what they think of African-Americans um, that isn't necessarily something that they're proclaiming, but it's so much of like the world that they're moving through. And the fact that not every racist is uh, you can pluck out of American history acts. I know, right? I mean, and that's kind of my, like, I wrote a piece for Sacred Matters about this, about, like, the look of white supremacy. Like, so we imagine that white supremacists are going to look like the cast of American history acts. Or they're going to look like Boyd Crowder from Justified, right, in his tank top with his sweat sticker tattoo on his shoulder. So, like, instantly you're like, villain, we're done, right? (laughs) Like, if only only our interactions with other people were that easy, right, that you could so easily identify. Um, whether they're nice or terrible, right, by what they're wearing. Um, but, yeah, it is, it is this kind of funny assumption that we make that, they're, that white supremacy should be obvious mm-hmm. when I think instead we should think about, like, all the ways in which it's invisible. And that kind of leads to um, a continuation but a sort of stealthiness to it that people aren't as quick to want to realize. Let's let's talk about the different brands of uh, <laughs> the different brands of things here. Yeah. Well, because uh-huh. because I feel like there are so many words and titles and categories that are yes. swirling around. That I mean, I've had I've had family and friends message me and be like, "Wait, how do these two things go together? I thought this was historical." And I was like, "Yeah, the, they're kind of being used synonymously." Right. So right. Like I'm thinking like white nationalism, right. white supremacy, the alt right racism and nativism yeah so these are all like all terms that i swim in all the time right um and so so we can just kind of like move through them so let's take white nationalism first so white nationalism is this idea of nationalism based on the interest of white citizens right or white peoples in particular places so i mean somebody tried to ping me on this on twitter where they're like they're like, oh, so white nationalism, you know, like, shouldn't you say white supremacy? Shouldn't you do this? And I was like, well, if someone's actually yearning for a white nation state, mm-hmm. I think white nationalism is a fair yeah. label for yeah. them, right? Um, there's also an argument to be made that much of American patriotism it's also falls right. in this category of white nationalism. <laughs> which, which, given my research, yeah. is, like, kind of this, like, weird, uncomfortable area where, like, oh, we're going to, like, yeah, I, I recognize that there's a racial aspect to this patriotism Right. But, <laughs> but, like, yeah, but also, like, I don't want to make that argument on the internet and then deal with, like, what my inbox will look like, because, um, anyway, um, I would obviously not be making America great. Making America <laughs> um, and so, so, white nationalism is this focus on nation state and white citizens and what's their best interest, right? So, white supremacy um, is that kind of larger category 
of understanding that white people are superior, mm-hmm. right? So very much you take those words apart, right? And it's this understanding that white people, white bodies are better than anyone else, right? And so white nationalism, right, is a part of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so white supremacy is our umbrella, right? White nationalism, I know, I feel like I need a, like a chalkboard or something. Maybe, maybe so I will. Maybe I'll design a little chart. Right. Um, and then, and then I would also argue that in the U.S., nativism falls under white supremacy mm-hmm. because it's this nervousness over immigrants, right, and over the, so prefacing the concerns of native-born citizens over people that are immigrating in some sort of way. What's interesting to me is that nativism has kind of fallen out of this conversation mm-hmm. at a moment where I was like, we could really use it when we're talking about Muslim ban, right? Like, there's a large history. Um, well, especially with regards to Catholics. Yeah, right. You could very much like tie this in with like the way in which race and religion are attached to mm-hmm. sort of these nativist movements. Um, and see, what was the other one? Oh, and then alt right, which I would also put under white supremacy um, <laughs> that likes to call itself a white nationalist movement. Though some folks in the alt right are kind of grumpy about that characterization. Um, I tend to think that they're white nationalist. Uh, it's my expert opinion in there. Um, but that movement is more like a constellation of a variety of different movements mm-hmm. so that the alt-right includes everyone from folks that want a white nation state, right? Want America to be a white nation state with only white interests. So like Richard Spencer, who's called for a white ethno state to folks involved in the men's rights mm-hmm. movement who find this appealing. Um, folks who mobilize under Gamergate are often under this. And then you get a whole bunch of folks um who are um neo-nazis right or are understanding themselves in a larger line of kind of um far-right ideology from europe right Mm -hmm. that they're looking beyond the u.s in some sort of way um and then it like quickly devolves into a whole bunch of labels (laughs) that are about how you understand race so folks that are um you know are futurist but they're also race futurist in a way that I don't do you, understand. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Because I'm pretty yeah. sure you say futurist and people are like, aliens? <laughs> like, no, right? and, and it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't entirely understand like how you're using this mm-hmm. language, right? Like you're future looking. I don't, I don't entirely know. Right. Um, and so, and then people that are very much in this sort of biological category of race that are working very much against ideas of race as cultural construction. Mm-hmm cultural and social and legal construction and instead are saying, no, no, these are biological categories. So, I mean, it really quickly, I and mean, one of the things that I learned really quickly when I started researching the alt-right is like, it's a wild world underneath this one little umbrella term. Um, and people just want to argue about what the term means. And I was like, whoa, you should look at all the adherents under this and try to figure out like how you want to describe what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it, I mean, it's, so you're right. I mean, like the terms are out there and like tracing like the origins and like how people are using them. And then what you find too, is a lot of people are using these terms incorrectly, yep. right? They're calling stuff one thing when it's actually more of something else. And I mean, and this is what scholars love, right? Where they can be like, oh, look, you use this incorrectly. Um, <laughs> I'm not as invested in those, but it is, it is interesting to see the way in which a term like white supremacy now gets thrown around. Mm-hmm. Right, and used in these very kind of particular ways 
that still sometimes manage to miss structural racism. Yes. <laughs> like, that's the part that, like, is so frustrating, is it's still us talking about extremists, usually, yes. when people are talking about white nationalists or white supremacists. I, I also just want to point out, because I, I hesitate, and I haven't seen this done a lot, but I think, I think it's being hinted at on occasion or misunderstood and interpreted because of the conversation surrounding evangelical support for Trump, that yeah. being a part of what historically we still refer to as the Christian right is not yeah. the same thing as being part of the alt-right. No, there can be anything. overlap, but they're they're not the same thing. <laughs> and, and most groups would be really unhappy, yes. right? Like very unhappy if you mix them up, yeah. right? And so the alt-righters would be very disturbed to be thrown in with something that they consider so kind of old school, old guard, mm -hmm. and explicitly Christian, um, because the alt-right has folks that are, that range from traditional Catholic to folks that are pagan to both that are very vocally atheist. So it has a lot of moving religious pieces and affiliations yes. in it too. Yeah. Um, that's interesting about the conflict where people are kind of confusing those two and it's like, Whoa, no, like we're really talking about very different things. Well, and um, I think, and I think it gets, it, it happens too is because when you, when you have, there's like a conversation about the alt right and evangelical support of Trump and the same article. Uh -huh, and, and then it looks, and like, then it looks like they're being combined. Yeah. And it, it's just, and and, you know, having studied the Christian right for a while, I was like, I'm pretty sure they'd be very, very angry. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it's kind of interesting, too, the way in which, um, you know, journalists are trying to make sense of this, too. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, well, these people all support Trump, so they must be, they must be the same. And it's like, well, well, no. Right? Actually, there are lots of different people that support Trump, and it doesn't mean that they're all ideologically or religiously mm -hmm. similar, right? He can appeal to different pieces of these movements. I think it's time to dive into the one topic we haven't really touched upon yet, which right. is a load, not, it's it's loaded, but it's very historical and can get ac very academic -y. <laughs> but is the yeah, history okay. of whiteness. The fact that, like, when, right. you know, when you were talking earlier about the historical clan and the kind of markers that made you a good American citizen... Well, being white was one of them, but what it meant to be white meant different things at different yes. times. No, I mean, and it's, and it's one of those things that comes around. Like, there was a moment in the 90s when there were, like, all these anti-racist, like, scholars um, who are working on, like, whiteness studies. And what was interesting is that when I, like, brought this up as, like, a part of my dissertation work, there were people on my committee that are like, oh, whiteness <laughs> like, 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 you can look at this if you want to. I'm not sure what it's going to give. And I was like, no, like, this is a really important. Like, this is an important way to think about race, isn't it? You know? But it was like the reaction to whiteness studies in the 90s because there were a bunch of, there was a group of scholars who were really working hard at this and they're thinking critically about racism. But I think it was like, people are like, why, why do you care yeah. about white people and race? And I think you're right about there's this new consciousness now where people are like, oh, Maybe we should actually be asking really important yeah. questions about, like, how whiteness works yes. and, and what it does and how it marks bodies and how it marks power relations and gender and all these other sorts of things. And so, you know, Claudia Rankin is using her <laughs> genius, her 
bring up to study whiteness yep. because it's something that we like we need to think about in a more critical way but that sort of like that shifting nature of whiteness is what causes some of the white supremacist groups that I study so much nervousness right like like how do you determine that someone is white right like is it just a thing about skin color mm-hmm. right or is it about politics and ideology or you know, and, and how does this tie into like where you're positioned with class and these other, so, so it's kind of a fascinating thing to see like the effort that they go through to prove their whiteness, yeah. right? Like really, all this effort to prove that they're white and that they're white for so many generations. And the, the critique I get most <laughs> when I write about this stuff and get like pushback online is that more often than not, I'm called a race traitor, <laughs> right? Like, so that the idea is that like me, a blonde white woman, working on this stuff, like explicitly talking about racism and being kind of unforgiving about that in some sort of way means that I'm somehow not white or that I'm like a traitor to the white race. And, or and or the concept like, of reverse racism. Yeah. The, it's very kind of, it's very intriguing and disturbing, but it says something about like how malleable mm-hmm. <laughs> that category is and, and how that malleability really stressing these folks out, right? That they need to like know how to identify that and how to trust people. Mm-hmm. Right. And, which people are on your side about this or not. Well, and um, I think, and I think historically too, I mean, to bring up the, the category of nativism again, yeah. of how much whiteness in this country did revolve around religion uh-huh. and that you were white if you were Protestant, but if you were right. Catholic, if you were Polish, you were if you were Italian, you <laughs> yeah. know, even German Catholics, you yeah. know, you're, you're over there. Still, still not, still not white. And I mean, and I think that's the kind of interesting piece that we often, is often missing there is how these groups, how religion has become a little less important to the understanding of whiteness in a way that in previous historical periods, Mormons weren't considered white, yeah. right? I mean, it's like this wild thing where it's like, nope, you're Mormon, so you can't be white. And it's like, what you know um or the, or even the, the categorization of how mormons you're a mormon you're a foreigner and you're like uh, you're like yeah, but no yeah, no you're no. not right? um, <laughs> it's so but i mean i think that's the kind of interesting history that we can think about like so what are the markers now mm-hmm. right like so if it's not protestant that's so crucial and i would argue actually for the clan protestant still really matters but for some of these other white supremacist movements not as much I mean, you really have to think about, like, so, like, how, what are the other shifting identities that we're attaching to whiteness here? Yeah. Because um, I'm pretty sure masculinity stayed through. Traditional gender roles. Um, whether we want it to or not, right? Um, and especially ideals, too, about, like, white womanhood and white, mm-hmm. what, what white womanhood is supposed to look like, right? Um, but but it, you're exactly right. Like, so it's very much this thing where this has shifted so much, Um and the sort of continual nervousness that these new white supremacist movements have over how to characterize Jews, right? Yes. Like, you know, and so that within the alt-right, you have folks that want to claim that Jews are okay because they're white. <laughs> and then other people that are like, nope, like, no, this doesn't work in any sort of way. And they're very anti-Semitic. Um, so just this kind of like how one group can actually like throw a wrench in their vision of what these categories are, I think, is something that we really kind of need to push on to and think through a little bit more. But it is also very interesting that, at least from my perspective, and maybe it's colored because of the research I do, how much of American nativism is still dominated by religious rhetoric. 
but yes. it's still yes. very much a religiously dominated category to be like yes yeah and, it, and it's so clear in the kind of reactions to the muslim ban right like very much the kind of explicit rhetoric mm-hmm. over nervousness over islam and you know people that want to go as far as suggest that islam is not religion <laughs> well yeah i was i was just i was also thinking about uh, Michael Shilson's article for Acts, Acts of Faith in the Washington Post is how people think it's a political ideology. It's not religion. Yeah. And, and what's what's fascinating to me about that is that there's a move, too, among scholars of American religion, <laughs> historically, to identify groups that made them uncomfortable mm-hmm. as political ideology rather than religious ideology. For example, the Klan that I study, um, historians before me were very much like, well, this is not actually religion. Right, like the religion is fake. This is actually all about politics. And, and then I like get into playing clan print culture, and I'm like, oh my gosh, every issue is about religion. Yeah. Like, when you talk, like you can't say this, but it's this kind of delegitimizing move to mm-hmm. say, oh no, 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 they pretend to be religion, but what they actually are is this political movement that we need to be nervous about. So that I find that like that strategy exists in a lot of different places, including that nativist, <laughs> right? Um, and so it's kind of interesting to see where that pops up outside of the academy, but also inside of the academy too, about like how we're going to mark what's good religion versus bad religion and versus the bad. And I was like, and we're still in this conversation in 2017. So oh, I guess yeah. we're never going to be over it. Say, but, we, um, we just talked about it in a seminar on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of those where I'm like, I'm like, wow, we're still in this conversation. Like I was over this conversation in like 2007. Right. But like, and that's only after I'd argued with people for years. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, well, like 10 years later, it's still a thing. But see, and, and the funny part is, is in, in like the public conversation that the religions we're still discussing and debating in this, yeah. in the, in this binary are dominant world religions. We're not even right. including like neo-paganism and oh. like all these... <laughs> No, no, I mean, like, the, the poor new religious movements, like, they are so, like, if we're still debating on they, whether Islam is a religion, is or religion, like, I mean, how do you even deal with Branch Davidi? Like, you can't, yes, right? Like, yeah. It, because it, you're still stuck on a conversation that we thought would be over. Um, but but it, you're right, it very much maps in the kind of public space, right? That you have people talk about, well, what you need to be able to do is decipher between, like, good religion, evil religion. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what are you talking, like, what? Like, how, like, how do you do that? And, um, and it comes down to often to, oh, well, this looks like what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Oxford Town, Oxford Town, everybody's got the page by now. Sun don't shine above the ground, ain't it going down, Oxford Town. He went down to Oxford Town, guns in which which does also get into the the conversation around one back to kind of like nice racism but also like the the humanizing of trump supporters and now after the election every trying to see who you know where where are the socioeconomic breakdowns of the people who voted for him and all the conversations around kind of like the protests against Trump, that if you supported Trump, you are still supporting, you know, the extreme, the extremists who supported him. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's hap- this lumping together of very diverse groups of people 
because they voted for Trump is happening even beyond religious and alt-right lines, I feel like. Oh, sure. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting too, because there was such an attempt before the election, as you mentioned, to like humanize the Trump voter, right. To like, let's understand them and to kind of figure out like what's going on. And there was a remarkable amount of backlash against that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, no, you don't get to humanize these people. Right. Um, and like, I can, I can understand some of the pushback about like, why are you humanizing this Trump voter, but you're not humanizing the victims of black victims of police brutality. Right. So there is a double standard here that I think we have to be, really careful about but it's it's intriguing to me as someone who worked really hard in my Mm -hmm. work on the Klan to think about empathy and the place of empathy in trying to understand these movements um so that one of the things that I tried really hard to do in that book and I'm not entirely sure I was always successful was to think about Klan members as human beings that had contradictory visions of what they wanted that they're messy that their lives are entirely clearly match a stereotype or a mm-hmm. caricature um and that maybe we need to like understand <laughs> why something like this could appeal to someone yes so we can combat it better uh and part of that was a move on my behalf because so many people researching hate groups at that time were very much against this move right they're terrible they're villains that's all you need to know about them and i was like well don't you kind of want to know like how a middle-class lawyer ends up in like, like mm-hmm. I would like to know the steps of how this happens. So that when we think about how hatred works or how white supremacy works, like what are the ways that we can kind of combat that? Where can our activism fall? Mm-hmm. So I get a little bit nervous when <laughs> people start dehumanizing folks on either side yep. of this to say, oh, they're just this kind of person. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, it it doesn't work in that um, kind of way. And we should kind of see, like, what we get if we take a moment to say, like, why is white supremacist, why are white supremacist organizations able to recruit now Mm -hmm. in a way that they weren't before? Like, so what's happening here, right? Um, Because there is a tendency, I think, to be like, I don't understand why this would appeal. And I'm like, well, then you're not who they're going for, which is fine and good, and I'm okay with that. But you need to understand, like, then, then who are they targeting? Yes. And, and what does this say about, you know, our country at this moment that, that that kind of make America great could mobilize so many of these different groups that are now alongside David Duke, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a, it's a tangle, and I think it's a hard ethical question for scholars too, but, but I get a little bit, I get a little bit nervous anytime I see dehumanization happen as the way to, to approach groups of people. It never ends well. Well, it was great to talk to you, and you I'm too. glad we were able to talk. This was fun. Those of you who um, have followed along on the Holy Media Twitter account know that I was just recently in Iceland. And this religion nerd moment comes from that trip. Uh, During my time in Reykjavik, I visited the National Museum of Iceland. And in their permanent display about the making of a nation, 
um, and the relationship and the development of Viking culture in Iceland, there's this little statue. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce it uh, because I would just be butchering the Icelandic word, but um, it's a little bronze figurine uh, that dates, they've dated dated it to around 1000 AD, and they're not entirely sure whether it's a statue that is depicting the Norse god Thor holding his hammer, or if it's a depiction of Christ, um, or if it's just a gaming piece. Um, But if you go and visit the show notes, you can see an image of this. And it's really interesting. Um, For those of you who don't know, the, the Iceland converted to Christianity peacefully, bloodlessly, it was just kind of like a mass conversion. Um, and so it, it'll be very interesting, you know, if they ever do more research on this, this statue to figure out whether it was actually a com- combination of, you know, Norse gods and Christianity coming together in this figure, if it was actually Thor versus Christ, or if we're all reading into this too much and it's just a game piece. But it, it's a really interesting piece um, and it's an interesting archaeological find. So take a look at the show notes uh, to see an image of it and let me know whether you think it's possibly Thor, Christ, or a gaming piece. actually noticed that this episode is four months late. Um, I apologize for that, but between a full course load, teaching, and researching, uh, Holy Media had to take a backseat this spring. But I'm hoping that's not always going to be the case. So with one year of my PhD down, I have now know how I'm going to try and balance doing this podcast, and doing all of my work. Um, And that's going to be an adjustment to the podcast schedule. So from now on, Holy Media will now run six months of the year, May through October, with many bonus episodes as current events require because things will happen, events will occur, and it is the responsibility of Holy Media to comment on things with regards to religion and media as they happen. But uh, hopefully with this new timeline, I'm going to be able to give equal attention to the podcast as I do to my research and schoolwork during the academic year. And by publishing episodes when I'm not in class, it's going to allow me to produce quality content that isn't rushed in favor of finishing term papers and projects. Um, There are actually also a couple other ideas in the works for Holy Media right now given this new timeline, so keep listening and keep checking the show's websites for updates as these possibilities develop. Um, And I really want to thank everyone for all of your patience as I negotiate research, teaching, and this podcast. Uh, Holy Media is really important to me as it's one manifestation and one way I'm trying to develop myself as a public scholar as an academic that tries to make the work I do relatable to a general public. So thank you guys 
for your patience and for continuing to listen to the show. We all need more kindness in this world. We all need more kindness in this world. You may look high and low, but there's no place else to go. We all need more kindness in this world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Holy Media. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at holymedia.com. There you can find links to some of Kelly's writings on white nationalism in light of the election and a link to an episode on whiteness from my favorite NPR podcast, Code Switch. Also, please leave a comment in the show notes. It'd be great to get a conversation going and I'm always looking for feedback. You can also start a conversation about this episode on Twitter. The show's Twitter handle is at Holy Media. And as always, you can find the show on SoundCloud, the iTunes podcast app, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you enjoy Holy Media, I ask that you rate and comment about the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Those ratings actually help the show gain an audience and provide me with feedback about what I'm doing well and what I could improve on. And if you leave a comment, I'll make sure to thank you in the next show. sunshine in this world You may look high and low but there's no place else to go Y'all need more sunshine in this world And this is Holy Media